chapter 3, and we're going to be talking about the tongue. Um, there's a story about the tongue that the Jewish rabbis tell, and as the story goes, there's a rabbi who one day asks his servant to go to the market and get him some good food. The servant returns home, and he presents the rabbi with tongue. The next day, the rabbi again says to the servant, go to the market, but this time, get some bad food. The servant returns and presents the rabbi with tongue. The rabbi asks, why on both occasions do you bring me tongue? And the servant answered, good comes from it and bad comes from it. When the tongue is good, there's nothing better. And when it is bad, there's nothing worse. If you'll remember, we've been in the book of James um, off and on several times over the past few months. When we've seen that James is telling us how to live a life consistent with our faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, he showed us blessed endurance through life's trials. In chapter 2, he reminds us that living faith obeys God and his word. And living faith is accompanied by good works. And here in chapter 3, James turns our attention to the tongue and how our words reveal our heart. Before we go any further, let's pause and, and pray. Join me if you will. Heavenly Father, we are indeed privileged to be here today. Privileged, Lord, to have your word. As we open your word now, may our desire be for you to reveal yourself to us. Teach us, Lord. Admonish us. Convict us where we need. Encourage us, we pray, O Lord. Give us your wisdom that we might know you better, that we might serve you more completely, and that we might love you more intensely. Lord, may my words this morning be true to you and true to your word. Through Christ we pray, amen. Well, before we actually jump into our passage, it, it's going to be helpful for us to consider some context. We need to remember as we go through this that the book of James was written to Jewish converts to Christianity. We also need to be aware that there were clearly some tongue issues in the church at this time. Uh, in fact, they're mentioned in virtually every chapter. We also need to keep in mind that when we read the word tongue or mouth, what James is really referring to is speech, to the words that we utter. In verse uh, 19 of chapter 1, James tells the people to be quick to hear, but slow to speak and slow to anger. In verse 26, again in chapter 1, James says that an uncontrolled tongue is a sign of worthless religion. In chapter 2, we're told to 
speak and act as though we're standing in the very presence of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, James tells the people, you shouldn't be having these quarrels and conflicts. And he goes on and admonishes them for speaking out against one another. And of course, here in chapter 3, especially in the first part, the tongue is front and center. Um, now, we also need to remember that James and his um, people that he's writing to, the believers in Christ at that time, would be familiar with the very words of Jesus, such as the ones that he spoke to the Pharisees that are recorded in Matthew chapter 12. If we start reading in verse 34, we find, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings forth out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of, of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The mouth speaks out of what fills the heart. Let's keep that in mind as we turn now and read our text, James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small member, a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how a great forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be in this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? The first point that James makes um, is one that, uh, as I stand here before you, kind of gives me chills. It's daunting. It's a serious warning to those who would preach or teach. Teachers 
be aware. Now, God wants us to teach, right? I, Jesus commanded it in, in Matthew 28, where he gave the Great Commission, go and into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that desiring the position of overseer is a good thing. Now, one of the primary responsibilities of an overseer is to teach. So James is not disputing that teaching isn't a good thing. He's reminding the people of his day and us that it's a serious thing not to be taken lightly. Those who teach shoulder a a significant responsibility. And with that responsibility comes accountability. Accountability to the highest level, even to the throne of Jesus Christ himself. And James includes himself here. We see how he says, we will incur a greater or stricter judgment. It's possible, though, that James is just addressing official teachers. Remember, James is is talking to Jewish converts, and we know that they would have been familiar with all the official teachers in the synagogue, as well as the official teachers within the early church. So it's, it's plausible that he's only talking to those teachers with official duties. However, we do know that there were unofficial teachers in both the Jewish synagogues and in the early church. Remember, Jesus himself stood up in the synagogue and read from the scriptures and taught in the synagogue, even though he didn't have an official capacity. It it was a common practice. And apparently it was also a common common practice in the early church as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul discusses the fact that many people were speaking at their meetings. He says, when you come together, every one of you has a song, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation. Lots of folks were taking part. And Paul says, that's okay, so long as all things are done for edification. So given what we can know about synagogues and about the early church, it seems clear that that James is including everyone who teaches in this warning. Whether they're teaching from the pulpit or teaching in a Sunday school class or leading a home Bible study. Instructing others in God's word is a dangerous undertaking because of the potential we have to speak error or to speak inappropriately or to misrepresent the gospel. We need to be aware. James' warning of stricter judgment should serve to deter those who are immature in the faith or perhaps unprepared or maybe unqualified in some other way. It should also deter those with improper motives. The right motive is simply to glorify God.
whether it's preaching from a pulpit, teaching Sunday school class, leading a small group Bible study, any other motive is going to be insufficient. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now, this is all good stuff. But it's really secondary to the main point James is making in this passage. So why do we spend time on it? Well, because I fear that too many people today are too casual in their handling of God's word. One of the things I love the most about this church, about our body, about our leaders, is the, the respect and the love they have for God's word. May it ever be so. James' main point, the, the theme, if you will, of this passage is those living a life consistent with faith in Christ control their tongue. James addresses teachers here in this first verse because out of all of us, our teachers should be mature. They should be knowledgeable. They should be capable in handling God's word. They should be able to tame the tongue if any of us can. But we all, James says, we all sin with our words. We all stumble, as he put it. And James included himself there as well. Well, James goes on and says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. What does perfect mean? There, there are a couple of ways that this word can be interpreted. The, the Greek word here is teleos. It's used frequently in the New Testament. And when it's used to describe God or Jesus, um, it, it means clearly absolutely perfect, without flaw. Well, that's, that's well and good to say of God and Jesus, but it doesn't apply to any of us. It doesn't apply to a man. But teleos can also mean someone who is spiritually mature. Now, achieving maturity is an ongoing process. We're, we're not born mature. We grow into it, right? And part of that process, actually a very big part of it, is gaining more control over your tongue. Unfortunately, the process won't be completed in your lifetime. Um, and also, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, you can't do it on your own. And yet, at the same time, it requires our participation. There's a bit of a paradox here. Teachers, be aware. Take your task seriously. Choose your words with care. Your tongue can wondrously proclaim God in his word. It can also cause grievous harm. When God gave us speech at creation, he gave us tremendous power. The power of speech is widely acknowledged, 
And, and even back in the time of Ralph Waldo Emerson, it was known to be powerful. Emerson said, speech is power. Speech is to persuade, to convert, to compel. You see, with our tongues, we can praise God, we can pray, we can preach, we can present the gospel. On the one hand, what a great privilege we have been given. Yet that same tongue can lie and defame and beguile and blaspheme. So on the other hand, what an instrument of destruction. We have this powerful instrument, which we too often take for granted. And we too often underestimate it, underestimate its effect. Now in these next verses, James gives us some analogies to help us understand the importance of controlling speech and the consequences of our words. And the first illustrations are the bit and the rudder. And they show us the tongue's power to direct. Pick up and read with me, starting in verse 3. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. James presents here for us two small items that exercise great power, just like the tongue. The tongue resides in the mouth, like the bit is in the horse's mouth. In both cases, a small thing moves and controls a whole body. The tongue is also like the rudder of a ship. It's, the rudder is just a small part of the ship, and yet it turns the whole thing. The tongue has great influence on the whole person. Both the bit and the rudder must overcome opposing forces. The bit must overcome the wild nature of the horse. The rudder must fight the winds and the currents that would push it off course. The tongue, too, must overcome opposing forces. Our old nature wants to exert control and force us to sin. The circumstances of life, the people that we encounter, often try to make us say things that we shouldn't. Internal and external forces seek control of our tongues. The new creation with Christ on the heart's throne engenders righteous speech leading to good works. Now, at first glance, it might appear that each of these illustrations has but two parts. There's the bit and the horse. There's the ship and the rudder. But if we consider these things carefully, we'll see that there's another part. The horse has a rider who uses the bit to direct the horse. The ship has a pilot who imposes his will through the rudder to steer the ship. Both the bit and the rudder must be in, under the control of a strong hand, directing horse or ship to the desired destination. But what about the tongue? With words, the heart 
or the will of man directs the deeds of his body. Abraham Heschel was a noted Jewish philosopher and theologian of the last century. And he said, speech has power. Words do not fade. What starts out as a sound ends in a deed. The bit and the rudder have the power to direct, and that means they affect the lives of others. A runaway horse or a shipwreck could mean injury or death, not just to the rider or the pilot, but to bystanders and passengers. Our words affect others. I was in church one Sunday many years ago, not here, and I got a lesson on how words can affect others. At the end of his message, the pastor asked a lady named Phyllis to come forward and, and share something with the congregation. Phyllis was really nervous, and she struggled to uh, tell her story. In fact, saying she struggled is being pretty generous. Now, Phyllis was an acquaintance, not really a, a close friend or anything, but I made a point of greeting her after the service and thanking her for sharing with us. I may have said something more, but I, I don't really remember that. What I do remember is the next week, Phyllis came up to me, very excited. She wanted to tell me that what I had said to her the week before had given her the courage to share her faith with a friend who was hospitalized and her friend accepted Christ. Our words are powerful, even when we don't realize it. Don't underestimate the impact of what you say. The tongue is like a bit and a rudder. It has the power to direct. And we need to be sure that our tongues direct people in the right way. Who controls your heart? There's really only two possibilities. Either you're controlling your heart or Jesus is. Studying this passage was hard. It convicted me in a number of ways in several areas. Now, I know from past experience that if I resolve to tame my tongue by myself, I will fail. Frequently and miserably. So for the past several weeks, I've made it a practice to start each day by asking the Lord to tame my tongue today. Do I still stumble? Every day. I believe the frequency is less. You can check with Patty and, and see if that's true. I have to recognize I'm still in the process of maturing. But more importantly, I have an increased awareness of when I stumble. And I'm immediately drawn to God to ask for forgiveness to ask for grace and for strength to carry on. Lord, tame my tongue today.
in the next section, James gives us yet another analogy. He compares the tongue to fire. Well, actually, he says the tongue is a fire. And then he goes on to describe the tongue's power to destroy. The tongue has power to direct. It also has the power to destroy. Let's look at um, verses 5 through 8, starting in the second half of verse 5. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Now, living in New Mexico, we're all too aware of just what a spark or a little handful of fire can do, right? It can cause massive damage to houses and property, to forests and to grasslands. Um, It can destroy countless acres of land. And the nature of fire is such that it wants to grow. And as it grows, it consumes. And if you want evidence of the power of the tongue to destroy, take an exhaustive concordance and look up the word tongue. You're going to find more than 100 entries. And if you go through those, you could generate a list. And if you did that, here's some of the things you might find. The tongue is identified as... Wicked, deceitful, lying, perverse, filthy, corrupt, bitter, angry, crafty, flattery, slanderous, gossiping, backbiting, blaspheming, foolish, boasting, murmuring, complaining, cursing, contentious, sensual, vile, tale-telling, whispering, exaggerating, and the list goes on. Is it any wonder that God put your tongue in a cage behind your teeth and walled it in with your mouth? Consider just a couple of verses from Proverbs. If we look at Proverbs 16, verse 27, we find an ungodly man digs up evil, and in his lips there is a burning fire. Proverbs 26, verse 20. Where no wood is, there the fire goes out. So where there is no tailbearer, the strife ceases. James says the tongue is a fire, and then he calls it the very world of iniquity. The word for world here is the same root from which we get cosmos. Now, this this word can also mean a system. Um, So James is describing the tongue as a system of iniquity, a microcosm of wickedness, the focal point of behavioral unrighteousness in man. It inflames all of our capacities in its effort to bring the the whole person into its wicked system. Next, we see that the tongue is 
as James describes it, set, um, set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. What if fire doesn't burn? It defiles. Smoke and stains from a fire penetrate everywhere, and they're difficult, if not impossible, to remove. And that's what the tongue can do to our entire body, to the whole person. Stain it and defile it. A filthy tongue results in a filthy person. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 20, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. Jesus goes on to list some of the evil things that proceed from within man. Things like deceit and lasciviousness and blasphemy and pride and foolishness and sensuality and envy and slander and so forth. Sound familiar? That's that, pretty much the, everything in that same list or, or earlier list, right? Well, James goes on and says the tongue sets on fire the course of our life. Or it could be translated, the circle of life. The tongue doesn't stop with just staining and defiling the individual person. Remember how a fire wants to grow and it wants to keep consuming? Well, the tongue isn't satisfied with tainting and staining just your body. It stains everything you touch. It affects every participant in your circle of life. Your entire sphere of influence is impacted. James closes his fire analogy with these words, and is set on fire by hell. The actual word is Gehenna, which was the city dump outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus referred to it several times in the New Testament. And I don't think it's really used outside of the Gospels and here anywhere else in the New Testament. Now, when Jesus used it, it was always as the place of eternal burning where damned souls would go. And I think um, it's really an awful place. Um, it's a place with an awful history where the fires never go out and where the stench is palpable. In one sense, the evils of the tongue flow from the heart. And in another sense, James says that Satan himself gives the tongue its power to destroy. If you ever wonder why the tongue generates so much trouble, James would answer that it is set on fire by hell. The next verse, verse 7, begins with the word for, and that indicates that James is going to give us some more explanation of what he just said. By this, we know that the tongue is inflamed by hell. Mankind can tame anything but the tongue. Every kind of animal can be tamed and has been tamed, but no human can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. The picture here is of a wild, dangerous, powerful predator lurking and seeking something to destroy. Unstable, apt to pounce at any moment, 
But James points out here that even the wildest, the most dangerous animals have been tamed by human beings. But no human has tamed the tongue. That's not to say that the tongue can't be tamed. For indeed, the tongue must be tamed if we're going to live a life that is consistent with our faith in Christ. He's just saying no person can do it. No man. Augustine explains that James does not say no one can tame the tongue. He says no man. So that when it is tamed, we admit that it was done by the mercy of God, the assistance of God, the grace of God. This helps clarify James' pessimism about the tongue. James says two things. The tongue has vast power, so we ought to control it. James also says no human can tame the tongue. Here's that paradox again. Bringing the passage to a close, James points out that the tongue exhibits power that is inconsistent. Picking up in verse 9, we read, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. One minute we use the tongue to bless the Lord, and the next we use it to curse our fellow man, even though God made that fellow man in his likeness. Such inconsistency is absurd. It's, it's as absurd as a spring that pours out both fresh water and salt water. It's as absurd as a single tree that produces both olives and figs. Springs are consistent. They bring forth the same clear fresh water day after day. Olive trees consistently produce olives. Yet the tongue is like a spring that waffles or vacillates between salt water and fresh water. Or like a tree that one day pours, uh, gives us peaches and the next day produces mangoes. Simply and emphatically, James says, my brothers, this should not be. James' conclusion is that no fountain can yield both fresh water and salt. A clean heart, a fresh heart, can't produce bitter water. And a bitter heart can't produce fresh water. True believers will be revealed by their speech. Now that's not to say that at times there won't be a little bitter water among the fresh. Remember, we all stumble. James, in this passage, forces us to ask some hard questions, to do some serious self-evaluation. What does your mouth reveal about you? Is your tongue tamed 
or is it running wild? What do you do in those times when bitter water comes out of that sweet fountain? Do you give up in defeat? Do you resolve to double your efforts and try even harder? Or do you turn to your loving Heavenly Father and ask Him for forgiveness, for renewal, for strength? I hope that's the case. Well, we've got a, we've got a little time here, and uh, I think it'd be good for us to address these paradoxes that keep showing up. Now, the, the funny thing about a paradox, the more you try and resolve it, usually the more trouble you get yourself in. Um, but I want to talk to you a bit about these paradoxes. And hopefully, even if it doesn't resolve it for you, it'll help you think. To start, I want to be sure that James is on the same page with Jesus. And for good measure, let's throw Paul in there too. Make sure all three of them are, are singing off the same song sheet. Matthew 12, starting in verse 34. We, we went through that a few minutes ago. Jesus taught that the heart is revealed by the mouth. And that's, that's pretty much the very same thing that James is saying here. The tongue provides the evidence of what's really going on in your heart. When we become Christians, we experience the new birth, re regeneration, salvation. We're transformed and sanctified. We become a new creation, and that new creation has a new heart. And out of that new heart comes new speech. Christians talk differently than other people talk. Not perfectly, but different. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 3, where we read, If then, or since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. A new life, a new attitude, a new perspective, a new focus. Therefore, set your mind on things above not on the old earthly things. Paul goes on, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amount to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. The implication is that now you're a new creation. You have a whole new approach to life, a transformed nature, and a transformed behavior. In verse 8, we read, Now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. 
put them all away. They have no place in the life of a believer. He goes on, do not lie to one another. That's one of those stumbling blocks, isn't it? Since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now that you're a believer, you have a new heart. And now that you have a new heart, you must have new behavior. And that new heart also means you have new speech. In fact, your speech is described down in verse 16 of Colossians 3. And let the word of Christ dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So your speech is dramatically affected by your new nature, by your transformation. It doesn't happen all at once. It's a process. And the progress will be obvious. Go back to James chapter 1, verse 26. If any man among you seems to be religious or thinks himself to be religious or presents himself as religious but does not bridle his tongue, he is deceiving his own heart and his religion is useless. Unless your salvation manifests itself in the way you speak, your salvation is nothing but self-deception. So we would say then, as James said in chapter 2, faith produces works. And one of the works that faith produces is speech that honors God. Now we've looked quickly at, at what Jesus, Paul, and James have said, and I'm going to pose to you that they're in harmony. They are indeed singing off the same song sheet. But there's still that paradox in the song. True believers, transformed people, those who have been made new in Christ will have a sanctified tongue. That's a sovereign reality in the new birth. And at the same time, true believers must have a tongue that is in the process of being sanctified. And we have a responsibility to fulfill in that process. It's not all up to us, but we're still participating in the process. And there, that's an amazing tension. That's, that's a dynamic paradox in the Christian life. Think about this. We're saved by grace and grace alone, the sovereign grace of God, right? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Yet, we must believe. We're kept in the security of God. He, he holds us in his hand. That's, that's part of his sovereign decree. 
Yet we're required to persevere through trials and tribulations. We live by sovereign power. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. Yet we have to obey. We'll never really be able to resolve the fact that what God says will be true of us must be true of us. Just because God said it will be true doesn't mean that we can just crash on the couch, kick up our feet, and hope that it all turns out. And that's the real mystery of these apparent paradoxes of our Christian life. Where there is genuine living faith and true regeneration and transformation, these things will be the result. And they must be the result. Faith without works is dead. God will produce the results in us. But he produces them in us through our commitment. So when James speaks of the tongue, he speaks of the truth that the tongue will reveal the condition of the heart. And at the same time, he calls us to do everything that we can to see to it that what the tongue does reveal is the regenerated, the transformed, the new creation heart. We cannot just sit back and say, well, God says I'm a new creation. I guess it'll all take place by itself. No, God says you are a new creation and it will take place but not by itself, but through your spirit-energized commitment. So while this passage is a statement on the character of living faith as revealed by our speech, it's also a call for us to correct our speech because the two go hand in hand. What God says will be true of us. It must be true of us. God takes care of the will be, and we, in submission to his power and in commitment to him, are participating in the process of becoming the must be. Would you stand and pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we are so dumbfounded by the power of the tongue. Help us, God, to control our tongues. We, we need your power to do that because we can't do it on our own. And yet you call us to participate with you in bringing that into being. May we, Lord, be good people who out of the good treasures which you have put in our hearts bring forth good things. Sweet fountains who bring forth sweet water. Lord, may it be that when we open our mouths, we bring grace and peace to those who hear. Father, we acknowledge that there are remnants of the old man still in us. Father, we, we admit that there are trials and, and opposing forces that um, seek for us to sin with our tongues. But may we look to you 
when we stumble, when the bitter water contaminates our spring of fresh water? Forgive us, Lord, and renew us, and may others know us to be yours by our words and by our deeds. May we, Lord, as we go forth this week, live lives consistent with our faith in Jesus Christ. And may all this be to your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. What a privilege to worship with you this morning. Um, have a great week and, and say hi to someone and, and fellowship a bit before you go.